Go ahead. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. We should be wrapping up this chapter this morning and concluding the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, an area of uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ we've been dealing with for about four sessions now. At some point, I would like to return to this section of Scripture and maybe devote an entire series to it. Uh, it's certainly a passage that could uh, easily devote two or three hundred hours worth of teaching to the, all the particulars involved, but that uh, would defeat the purpose for uh, what we're trying to do now in the Life of Christ series. So uh, we'll be able to wrap it up. We'll be dealing with mainly verses uh, 12 and following, but before we uh, tackle any of that, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to guide our thoughts, shall we pray? Father, we do come before you thankful for this day and thankful for the opportunity we have to assemble together. We rejoice, Father, at your faithfulness, and we ask for that faithfulness to be manifest once again this morning in guiding us into the Word of God. Pray for distractions to be set aside. We ask that you would hedge us about and prevent those from coming in here who uh, they're just looking for money or they're looking for trouble. And, Father, just uh, they, we've got nothing here to offer them but the truth of your Word, and they're not interested in that. So we uh, look to you to guide and protect, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So many things to uh, deal with, and I don't uh, can't repeat four sessions here in session five to try to wrap up what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It does consist of primarily three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. There is a correlating passage in the Gospel of Luke where you can get supplementary information, only about 20 verses worth in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. And really the only significant portion that we have turned to uh, is in the Lord's Prayer where the disciples go to him and they ask, teach us how to pray as John also taught his disciples. That is uh, primarily the significant uh, element in Luke's record that is uh, not to be found in Matthew. And so we wanted to, to bring that in to the understanding of that prayer when the Lord says, Pray then in this way, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we go into those elements of that prayer that we realize what that prayer is. is a baby prayer. It's a prayer of disciples that don't know how to pray, that want the Lord to teach them how to pray. And so he gives them that as a model to start with. But then ultimately, of course, we want to be able to go beyond the uh, the baby prayers and get to where we can pray ourselves as adult sons, adult daughters with a, an intimacy that can be reflected in our prayer life. Uh, these chapters form the first lengthy discourse. And if you missed it, uh, it's profitable to remind ourselves of where these discourses are. The Gospel of Matthew is unique among the, the four Gospels in that it does present word for word these lengthy discourses. The Sermon on the Mount is the first one. We've got another one coming up in chapter 10 that I usually back up to the last part of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 35, all the way down through chapter 10 and verse 42. Because that discourse describes the mission of the disciples. And we're going to spend some time on that because it's commonly used uh, by believers today as a license for their own ministries. And uh, what's overlooked is the context in which that passage is given. It is in the dispensation of Israel. It is the sending forth of of uh, the disciples to minister to Israel at that time. And if we're going to draw a church age application, we want to be cautious that we are only drawing it on a secondary basis, not 
a primary basis. And we do the same thing with Sermon on the Mount. And I want to stress that again here this morning. The parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Again, primary text, 53 verses long, all these parables of the kingdom. And all too often, believers will, will throw the church into there as if we are the primary recipients of that message. It is the parables of the kingdom. We have not yet seen the kingdom of God realized on the earth. Now, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, certainly. We are the bride of Christ, absolutely. But for the time being, the king has not been sent forth to receive his kingdom as of yet. He will do so in the Father's will. And I hope we can understand that we will glean spiritual principles out of Matthew 13, but we will also recognize that the bulk of its fulfillment will come in the millennial kingdom. Same thing here with the Sermon on the Mount. We, we draw principles from it, but its primary application will find fulfillment in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Parables of Discipleship makes up the chapter of uh, Matthew 18 and then the Mount Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. There, too, is a, is a series. We'll probably spend four or five lessons on it uh, in our Life of Christ series. But that, like the Sermon on the Mount, is something I would love to develop a, uh, a separate study all on its own. Just develop a series on the Mount Olivet Discourse and spend 200 hours uh, verse by verse, word by word, detailing it because, uh, tragically, it is uh, the, the, the section that is misapplied by uh, prophecy enthusiasts and those that are all excited about the coming of Christ and all these signs of the end of the age and how we're, we're living in the end times. There's all these miracles and signs around us. And they, uh, they, they confuse things. They don't need to be confused. And so I would love to develop an entire series on simply the Mount Olivet Discourse. All right, so there you have them. Um, other points, I won't go into them if, if you missed them. Uh, under point two, we did the, uh, we recognized who the audience was, primarily his disciples, but also there were crowds that were there. We also uh, then plunged into the content of the chapters, starting with the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. Uh, the blessed ours, blessed ours, blessed ours, or I think it'd be better to render it happy are, happy are, happy are. We spent the time on that. Primary application is millennial, but we can certainly draw a secondary application ourselves. In other words, are we are we peacemakers? Okay. Well, we we would expect to be. Uh, you know, it's a lot better in your Christian walk if you're conciliatory, if you can make peace between brothers, if you can reconcile brothers and sisters in Christ. That's you know that's never a bad thing. Uh, but are we called upon to be the peacemakers of the world today? Is it up to us to bring in peace on earth and trying to claim a verse like blessed are the peacemakers? See, entire churches and denominations have have gleaned that as their mission. And we're trying to bring in world peace and we're going to visualize it. and We're going to uh, we're going to actually make it happen. We're going to usher in peace on earth so we can hand the kingdom to Jesus Christ when he arrives. And we'll be so proud of ourselves. Here's this wonderful kingdom we prepared for you by bringing in peace on earth. No, we can't do that. So misapplying this is uh, vital. Sure, we want to apply the, the Beatitudes in general, but we cannot claim them in specific. We cannot claim that we are the heirs of the Beatitudes, that we are the recipients of the, uh, of the admonishment because it's a kingdom of heaven passage and it's primarily for Israel's fulfillment when the kingdom is realized. After the Beatitudes comes the similitudes. Again, our application is secondary. Do we want to be salt and light? Of course we want to be salt and light. But we want to be salt and light in our own stewardship under principles of grace, under principles of the church age. We cannot be salt and light under a kingdom aspect that Israel will be fulfilling in the millennial kingdom. 
You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And let's realize that's designated to Israel for millennial fulfillment. And any application we have is going to be secondary, uh, keeping with consistent application of church age principles. Under uh, point five, we moved on past the similitudes and went on into the mental attitude portion of the chapter. The longest portion of the entire Sermon on the Mount, longest section of chapter five, chapter six or chapter seven is uh, verses 17 through 46 here in chapter five, where the Lord adds the mental attitude sins on top of the overt sins uh, that are um, judgeable in the millennial kingdom. They will be accountable for it in the millennial kingdom under Mosaic law. Uh, of course, they were accountable to be an adulterer. They were accountable to be a murderer and all these other external deeds. If they committed them, they were sinners. They were unclean. They were excluded from uh, the solemn assembly. And they had to come bring a sin offering and a trespass offering and a burnt offering. And they had to go through the cleansing rituals in order to be readmitted into the solemn assembly. All right. In the millennial kingdom, the mental attitude sins will be added to that for uh, exclusion or inclusion with the solemn assembly in worshiping with Jesus Christ. We spend a lot of time on that. Finally, the summary statement, our goal is perfection. The goal is the Father's perfection. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 48 of this, of this passage. Far beyond anything the Old Testament ever dreamed about. Far beyond what Leviticus ever dealt with. Leviticus dealt with holiness. You shall be holy as your father is holy. This passage takes it a step even further, bringing in everything that would encompass perfection, including holiness, but so much more than holiness. Everything that centers on perfection is to be uh, our objective and our goal. That's why we grow, because we're not there yet. That's why we're in the Word of God. That's why we endure testing. It's the testing of our faith that produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our goal is the same perfection that the Father exhibits and that the Father manifested in His Son. This uh, will be uh, fulfilled, as I say, in the Millennial Kingdom, but we have application today. Chapter 6 continues the Sermon on the Mount with the practical messages for believers to live their perfect life. How are you going to live your perfect life? You're going to live that perfect life under the Father's observation. Pleasing your Father with every thought, word, and deed, and not giving two hoots about what other people think. All right? If you're trying to impress people with how godly you are, if you're trying to impress people with how much money you give or how well you pray or how, uh, how much you're suffering for Jesus in your fasting and everything else, if you're trying to impress people, give it up. This passage describes the fact that we serve in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And those are principles for living this perfect life. We must also have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, our greater than Pharisaical righteousness, because that's what grants us the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is God's imputed righteousness, which, of course, we receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Applications being giving prayer and fasting, but we can we can apply all kinds of things to this, not simply limited to those three areas. Under point nine, we outline the Lord's Prayer or as I call it, the so-called Lord's Prayer. I prefer to title John 17 the Lord's Prayer. I find that to be a much greater high priestly ministry. Uh, this is actually the new disciples' prayer, the baby believers' prayer, the basic training orientation to prayer so that uh, someone who is brand new to the faith, someone that is not comfortable with speaking to their father can learn uh, the rope, so to speak, and can develop uh, an acclamation for prayer. 
But once you get uh, acclimated and accustomed to praying and intimate with the Father, then uh, the necessity to have a uh, a formula or a model or a pattern or some kind of uh, tool like that is no longer necessary. Finally, in point 10, our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. And that's the that's uh, not it. How did I get there? Oh, I know how. There we go. Our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. And that's verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, keep in mind, this is going to be applicable to Israel and the millennial kingdom. But we draw application ourselves today. This is clearly a principle that we can use today. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. In other words, we need to have a heavenly focus. And we can make the application of this millennial passage because we have other passages like Colossians 3.1 that give us the authority or the authorization in the church to, uh, to make application of a text such as this one here. All right? Does that make sense? Because we have Scripture elsewhere in the epistles, Scripture that is clearly targeted to church-age believers, Colossians 3.1 saying, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. All right. That passage becomes our authority to take this passage and be able to draw a secondary application from it. Because this passage isn't for us. This passage is a kingdom of heaven passage. As we say many, many times, the charter of the millennial kingdom. But because we have Colossians 3.1, we can draw this into a church age application. Under point 11, our perspective should be kept clear as we serve the Lord and reject the master of darkness. You've got to have it one or the other. You cannot serve them both. You cannot serve two masters. You're either serving God the Father by glorifying Jesus Christ, or you are serving uh, the God of this age, your father the devil, by not glorifying Jesus Christ. And it is a black and white absolute issue. When it comes down to so many other things beyond the sin factor, you know, pick a sin, any sin. All right. And I don't want you want to show of hands. You know what your sins are. Pick any one of them. All right. Beyond the fact that it's a sin and beyond the fact that it falls short of the glory of God and that you have to confess it to be restored to fellowship that beyond all that it is by committing that sin, you are failing to glorify Jesus Christ which we are called upon to do with every thought, word, and deed, day by day, moment by moment. And because we're failing to glorify Jesus Christ, we're not serving the Father. And this passage tells us that uh, we're serving the other master. We're serving mammon. We're serving the God of this age. There's much more work to be done on mammon, um, syntactically, vocabulary-wise, and conceptually. But just viewing that as a title or a term representative of Satan as the God of this age, the source of all pseudo provision, the source of all satanic wealth and everything the world has to offer. We should be looking to God for his provision and not looking to the world or looking to mammon for what uh, Satan might want to provide for us. Our temporal life circumstances and details are in the Father's hands so we can relax and concentrate on spiritual matters as we walk by faith day by day. Matthew six twenty five through 34. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I, st- I said it last week. I don't know if, if it was caught. So I'll say it again. When it says seek ye first, it does not mean seek ye only. It means seek ye first. All right. And the... Um, 
misapplication of this when people uh, neglect their temporal life responsibilities. They try, in some cases, they neglect their temporal life responsibilities, and then they claim that, oh, I'm just fulfilling, I'm just obeying the Bible. Because the Bible says, seek first. And so I'm just, I'm just going to do this, I'm just going to study, I'm just going to go to church, I'm just going to focus on my spiritual life, and then whatever happens, happens, and they get neglecting of their temporal life. All right? That's why we want to discuss this. In fact, we've had conversations, some of us here, we've had conversations on this very matter outside of class. Now, it does not say, seek ye only. Okay? It says, seek first. So what does that mean? That means, this is what you seek first, and then, what might you also seek second? And third, and fourth, and fifty-fifth. You might have ninety-nine different things that you're seeking, that's fine. But as long as the first thing you're seeking is the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that is, you are seeking to fulfill God's plan for your life. So it says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Okay, that means you do not have the inordinate mental attitude sin. You do not have the inordinate concern that leaves the, the natural realm and, and ventures into mental attitude sin. Do not be worried about your life. And uh, look at the birds. They don't uh, sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into your barns, and yet your father takes care of them. Are you not worth much more than they? And that is a contrast. That is not an illustration. That is a contrast. Saying, that's them, this is you, that's how they live, but God takes care of them. This is, God's going to take care of you even more because you're more important than them. It doesn't say, go out there and live like a bird. Okay, it's a contrast, not an illustration. See, you you don't have that as a license to say, oh, well, I don't have to work. I don't have to make money. I don't have to have a bank account. I don't have to save anything. I don't have to buy a house or live in a home. I can be like the birds and God will feed me. All right. If that's your thinking, well, then (laughs) I hope you like worms. Because that's what God fed those birds with. I think you're mixing your metaphor. If you want to really eat like the birds, then have at it. But that's not what God supplied. This is a contrast, not an illustration. So it says uh, in verse 31, do not worry then. That is, don't plunge into mental attitude sin. There is such a thing as a legitimate concern. There are, of course... Actual uh, matters that you have to deal with in, in temporal life. Jesus illustrates that. I mean, he's hanging on the cross, making arrangements for the care of his mother, taking care of temporal life issues right then and there. See, you kind of think he's got more important things to deal with, like redemption. <laughs> but he's hanging on the cross. He sees John standing there, the beloved disciple, and says, take care of her. So there are legitimate matters to be concerned over but not to the extent of mental attitude worry. So when it says in verse 33, seek first, seek first. It doesn't say seek only. It says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, you can seek them second, third, fourth, and so forth. Have normal priorities, but center the Lord as first and foremost in your life. All right. That was under point 12. The Sermon on the Mount continues with the message that we are not called upon to sit in judgment over one another. 
And if you missed it, last week and the week before, we talked about having that judgmental mental attitude where you're just looking down your long, snooty nose at a fellow believer, and uh, you got that beam in your own eye. We're not here to judge anybody. We certainly can't, that is, sit in judgment, in condemnation judgment, as if somehow they answer to you. They don't. They answer to Jesus Christ, same as you and I answer to Jesus Christ. So we aren't condemning. Neither do we sit in judgment over unbelievers. And all too often, as we throw pearls before swine, it's, uh, it's a failure on our part to acknowledge where they are and uh, what uh, it is that they're not ready for and what it is that they will not appreciate it. Under point 15, our prayer life is guaranteed by a loving Heavenly Father who delights in providing for us. Principles of prayer that are found here. Verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who knocks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. Again, it's a millennial passage. Are we going to draw an application in the church age? Sure. On a secondary basis, we will draw an application in the church age. We have uh, principles elsewhere in the New Testament to give us that authorization, to give us that basis upon which we approach the Father in prayer, upon which we can intercede on behalf of one another. But do we have a universal right to just simply name it and claim it? Say, Father, I'm asking for this. Now you have to give it. You're obligated. I've asked and I have to receive. I've knocked. You have to open. You know, is, is this going to turn God into some kind of robot that we can manipulate through prayer? Not at all. Not at all, because this is a passage we have to correlate with other passages in prayer. If you ask for the wrong thing, if you ask for something outside his will, he's not obligated to give it to you just because you asked for it. And if you ask without faith, he's not obligated to give it to you. James says, if you ask, you must ask in faith. For if you do not believe, don't expect that you will receive it. Or if you're asking with wrong motivation so that you can spend it on your lust, God's not obligated to grant that. Okay, all too often people take one passage, it's a millennial passage, and then make that the center of their theology. We draw application on a secondary, on a secondary basis, but we must correlate the remainder of our New Testament text in order to recognize the uh, aspects of, of prayer provision. So I can't just, you know, knock and there, open door, go do what I want to do or ask and why hasn't the Father given it to me, see? misapplication of a millennial text trying to inject it into a church age application all right that reviews everything that we've done to this point we wrap it up with point 16 17 and 18 this morning point 16 the sermon on the mount also featured many other well-known teachings of christ it's staggering how many of these passages are those that uh you'll have in the back of your mind you'll be wondering now where was that passage again and so many times when you have those, where was that again? They end up in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> it is just an amazing sermon that has so many of those memorable uh, passages that, uh, that come in here. Starting with the Golden Rule in verse 12. Just a basic principle, one for application. It's going to be accountable. It's going to be... Uh, legislated in the millennial kingdom but it's certainly applicable today in everything therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you okay now that is a statement of for application of the millennial kingdom that is the rule they will have to follow they'll be obligated to follow under kingdom law but nevertheless today in the church can we follow that principle of course 
we can follow that principle. Now, do we, uh, you know, do we expect that we will reap kingdom blessings because we follow that principle? No, we'll, fo- we'll reap church blessings when we, follow, when we follow that principle. See, and you'll also note that it says, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is a boiled down summary of what the Bible's all about. Law and prophets being a term for the Old Testament, the Bible that that uh, Jesus and his disciples had in their day. This is the law and the prophets. This is the summary. Elsewhere, he summarizes it as you can summarize the whole law with, uh, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are just ways in which Bible doctrine gets summarized. It gets encapsulated. It gets uh, it gets boiled down to a to a to a bumper sticker almost all right just a simple proverb a simple statement that if you follow that you know a believer who follows this may not have a whole lot of doctrine besides this but they're going to be edifying in their christian walk aren't they i mean you can be just an infantile believer with a thimble full of doctrine and if that's the one verse you know and the one verse you apply you'll be an edifying blessing in, in any local church so we have the golden rule. I mean, it's it's so well known, even unbelievers cite it occasionally and they know that it's even in there, you know, and they've perverted it and changed it. And sometimes there's forms of it that are not biblical. Right. And then there's, the, you know, the world's methodology behind it. You know, get the other guy first, <laughs> you know, do unto others before they do unto you or so they can't do unto you and, and things like that. You know, the world perverts it. But the, uh, the reality is it's a, it's a good summary for the Christian way of life. You can't go wrong, in other words, if uh, you make this as an application. Another area is the narrow and the broad gates, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter what? <laughs> Enter church. Enter the ballpark. Enter the grocery store. Well, no, it's, it's the path that leads to life. It tells us in verse 14. Um, narrow that leads. It says uh, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Let me just read both verses in their entirety. Enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, the hoi polloi, the many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, remarkably enough, this is in, in a millennial application. It gives us a glimpse as to how fruitful gospel ministries are going to be during the thousand year reign with Jesus Christ on the throne. Don't think for a minute that uh, that, you know, Billy Graham style evangelism is going to be easier to accomplish in the millennium than it is today. Don't think that the fact that Jesus is seated on a throne in Jerusalem is going to improve things. The natural man, the unbeliever, is still an unbeliever. The sin nature is still a sin nature. And the gospel message is still going to be hated by those who love darkness rather than light. And, and the, the physical location of Jesus Christ on earth isn't going to change that in the second advent any more than it changed it in the first advent. And so gospel ministries in the millennial kingdom will still be uh, slim, you may give the gospel to 100 people before uh, you see one that actually comes to Christ. Don't, uh, don't let that shock you. Don't let that shock you that the ratio of redeemed or regenerate to unregenerate is, uh, is pretty striking. 
that there are far more unregenerate than there are regenerate in this world, and there always will be. See, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. It's a contrast that we apply today uh, as a concept. It's, a, it's also a principle that we want to um, use as a note of caution. Um, because there's a tendency to, in 21st century American evangelicalism, there's a tendency to simply embrace something because, well, everybody's doing it. And it's popular and it's thriving and it must be blessed. God must really like it because look at the results. See, and whether it's purpose driven or whether it's it's uh, seeker friendly or whether it's whatever it is, the latest trend, if it's some kind of a Jabez thing or if it's some other kind of thing. All right. Um, you know, maybe it's a Da Vinci something or other. You know, you lose track of all these trendy things because they come and they go and the next one's on the way. Right? So, uh, I mean, we could start talking about the, the big fads and crazes and things that were going on in the back in the 70s. And, and you all of a sudden it would dawn on you and you'd scratch your fuzzy head and say, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. Well, it was a big craze back then. It was ten times bigger than, than the things are nowadays. But that's, that's the way of it. Ten years from now, we'll make a reference to Purpose Driven and people say, what was that? Yeah. What was that all about? But we want to use this principle as a note of caution rather than just simply rushing headlong and following the lemmings and, and just embracing the latest craze. All right. And uh, it is no great surprise to me that the doctrinal churches that teach line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that follow the isagogics, categories, and exegesis of Scripture, it is no surprise to me that, uh, that they're not megachurches. Does that shock anybody else? I'm not shocked by that. All right. Narrow gate and broad gate. Those that proceed on the straight and narrow, those that follow God the Father's protocol plan of the ages will always be in the minority. Another area of teaching is the wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing. This has to do with false teachers, false prophets. Bearing in mind this is a millennial context, there will be prophecy active and uh, featured in the millennial kingdom. Uh, we don't have prophecy featured in the uh, post-apostolic age of the stewardship of the church. But we can draw a secondary application from this passage if we substitute the word teachers for prophets in there. We recognize that false teachers, false uh, pastors and so forth are possible. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they come to you. They aren't literally sheep. They are disguised as sheep. They are, the reality is that they are wolves. And uh, additional reality is that they are very hungry wolves and uh, you are not somebody to be tended. You are not somebody to be loved. You are not somebody to be nurtured. You are somebody to be eaten. You are the next victim. They are. Uh, that's what wolves look at. When a wolf looks at sheep, uh, the wolf sees a meal. All right. And uh, the danger of false prophets and the Lord promised that there would be many that would come uh, that would arise false prophets and false Christs prior to his second advent. I find it interesting that there will continue to be false prophets that will rise even after his advent while he reigns on the throne. 
but we are to beware of them. They come to you. And it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, some believers say, well, I'm not really worried about false doctrine. I'm not really worried about false teaching because I know that uh, I know that we have a good church and I know that we've got a faithful pastor. And I know that that if I just, you know, mind my own business and, and go to Bible class and then I don't have to worry about false teaching at all. OK, be careful with that, because this passage points out the fact that they will come to you. <laughs> yeah, you may not be going to them. You may not. Uh, no, if you. Uh, yeah, you can you can walk into a circumstance you shouldn't be in. If you, you know, somebody invites you to come to some, you know, Pentecostal faith healing service. Right. And they say, hey, you want to come to my Pentecostal faith healing service? And you say, oh, yeah, OK. And you go on in there and they're speaking in tongues and rolling in the aisles and doing all this other stuff and foaming at the mouth. All right. Well, you know, why would you go there? Why are you putting yourself into that? But even if you don't go to them, they will come to you. They'll find ways. All right. A neighbor, a co-worker, somebody comes up to you and starts to inject uh, some false teaching. Remember, their only interest is lunch. Their only interest is consuming you. The wolves in sheep's clothing, which leads on into the uh, fourth area, the knowing them by their fruit principles of verses 16 through 20. Well-known teachings of Christ, you shall know them by their fruit. Used mostly by church age believers as if this was written for us. It's not. It's written uh, for the Jewish people in the dispensation of the millennial kingdom. However, we will draw a secondary application. Clearly, the, uh, the, the principles of wisdom that are contained in this verse are, are true in any stewardship. Uh, the idea of a good tree bearing bad fruit or a bad tree bearing good fruit in, in, is just as alien in the church age as it is in any other stewardship. But let's stop to consider what this actually is, because um, because there's a danger in in um, there's a danger in not recognizing the seasons. Okay, and and we'll we'll say more on this later when uh, as as he's approaching the cross, there's a fig tree and it doesn't have any figs on it, and with with just a word, Jesus withers that fig tree. Okay, are you familiar with that? And it's interesting because some have pointed out that at that time of year, uh, in the spring, as, as, uh, the Lord was approaching, uh, the cross at Passover, that, uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't expect to have figs on that tree anyway. That it was far too early for that tree to be in harvest. It was far too early to, to, to pick figs from that tree anyway. And so isn't it kind of unreasonable for Jesus to get mad that, you know, there's no figs on this tree? <laughs> you know, and they kind of describe it as maybe it's a temper tantrum that Jesus is just mad because he showed up. He wanted figs or any figs. And so he just gets mad and he withers the tree. All right. Well, yeah, if Jesus was a two year old throwing a temper tantrum, maybe. But that's not the reality of it. So there must be another doctrinal application to the withered fig tree. OK, we'll get to that. But with this one, I still want to to address a similar aspect because you will know them by their fruits and all too often we get very uh, uh, narrow <laughs> we're just looking right here right now 
at this moment, at this moment, today, this person isn't bearing any fruit. Therefore, he's an unbeliever. He never has been a believer. He's never been saved. He's on the road to hell, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, wait a minute. You will know them by their fruit, it says, or fruits, plural. Okay, and it's not simply a matter of what is the circumstance right here and right now. But when you look over the span of time in a person's life or ministry and whatnot, uh, has there ever been a time when they bore fruit? You know, in times past was fruit observed in times past was fruit manifest. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, no, they've never borne any fruit. The reason why is because I'm too mad at them right now. See, and I'm not seeing any right now. But have they, has there been fruit in times past? In which case, is it an aspect of a false prophet, a false teacher, an unbeliever, a wolf who's not truly a sheep? Or is it an aspect of a sheep who's struggling, a sheep that needs help? You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Rhetorical question, obvious answer, no. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And that's the nature of it. But whatever kind of tree it is, if it's a grape or if it's a a fig or if it's an orange or an apple or whatever. The principle is there. Now, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And it's interesting is that that uh, and we'll get to more of this in John 15 when we talk about the vine dresser. Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser, because what happens when uh, a good tree, a believer who should be bearing fruit doesn't. He stops. He's not abiding in the word. He's gone into carnality. All right. Then comes the discipline. Then comes the pruning. Then comes the, the different things. But it's dangerous for us to say, well, you're not even saved. You're never been saved because we're looking at your present carnality and we're just ascribing that to your entire life all right i think all too often we're too quick to just doubt the people were ever saved in the first place and it's not fair to the text here to to read into it that way all right point 17 the sermon on the mount closes with two warnings verses 21 through 27 there are two warnings pretty well-known warnings Verses 21 through 27, the first of which in 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Okay. in other words, there's a difference between being a professing Christian and in reality being a child of God. There are a lot of people that will tell you that they're saved. That aren't. The issue is, um, the issue is, do you have the relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ? Does he know you? All right. And that's uh, not here in the Matthew text. That's in the Luke parallel. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Now, we're going to be careful with that here in a moment because this can you can misread this and, and start to impute works into verse 21 that to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Excuse me. To enter in the kingdom of heaven, you got to do good works. Right. Only those who do the will of the father get to go into the kingdom of heaven. So I want to do good works and earn my way there. That's not what this text says. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? Notice how charismatic this crowd is. Professing, but not possessing eternal life. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. There's the reality of it. I never knew you. They don't have a relationship by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Everything they did, every miracle they did, every work of power they did was an act of lawlessness. It was not produced by the Holy Spirit. It was not to the glory of Jesus Christ. It was not by a child of God, regenerate. It was by an unbeliever with other power provisions, demonic power provisions. Supposedly it was in your name. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? See, some of the biggest cults on planet Earth today use the name Jesus. Yeah, Mormons and, and you name it. But the, uh, the reality is that their, their soteriology and their theology and, and their Christology and everything else is, is totally demonic. All right. I never knew you. When we talk about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it's not based upon what we have done for the Lord, but what he has done for us. If you're trying to impress him with what you've done, guess again. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he did. He died on the cross. And on the basis of that, you can know him. You can know him. Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the first and foremost thing. If you don't have that, you don't have the foundation. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the foundation. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not based upon what we've done for the Lord, but what he has done for us. You know, um, can't go to, uh, I can't, you know, if I die, use that as an evangelism tool. You know, if you were to die tonight and approach the, and, and, and you met St. Peter at the pearly gates and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to tell him? Right? You ever heard that? People use that as a witnessing tool. And well, it's not going to happen. Peter's not going to be waiting there as a guard at the gate saying, why should I let you in here? Okay. Uh, <laughs> As if somehow an unbeliever can mistakenly get to the pearly gate in the first place and then have to, you know, there's a lever that opens up that hatch or something. Okay. <laughs> Why should I let you in here? In a way, it's a good tool if there are those who have a false view of salvation. If they think their church is going to get them in, they think they've done good deeds to get them in, then you can use that. Because if the person doesn't totally understand salvation... And you give them this little uh, hypothetical thing, you know, St. Peter tells you at the pearly gates, why should I let you in here? Uh, and then if they, if they take that question seriously and they start giving you a long list of things, that's a clue that they don't understand grace through faith. See, they, start, they, they may not tell you that, you know, we cast out demons and we healed and we prophesied. They may say, they may come up with a long list of other things. I went to church, I tithed 10%, I... Uh, you know, I did all these other things. I got baptized. I got sprinkled as a baby, baptized as a teen, and dunked as, a, as an adult, you know, and all these different things. If they're laying all those things out there, then you've got a, a pretty good idea that, that they need the gospel. See? But if you give them that hypothetical and they say, I have entrance by virtue of the fi uh, finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He removed my sin. I'm made righteous. 
Well, why are you even asking me the stupid question? <laughs> right? Peter, who do you think you are? Open that gate. All right. Keep that in mind. And by the way, this is why it's so sad that the, in the, the charismatic circles, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ that are all caught up in proving their worth by how much they speak in tongues or how much they do all this other stuff. We'll have more to say on that when we develop spiritual gifts on Sunday morning. I never knew you. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, what do we do with this phrase where it says, he who does the will of my father? Well, I'll tell you what the will of the father is. The will of the father is in John 6:40. So if someone is trying to point to that verse and say, there, see, you've got to do the will of the father. You've got to do works to get saved. I say, no, you don't. You want to know what the will of the father is that he's talking about there in Matthew 7, 21? You can find it spelled out word for word in John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So there's the will of the Father. You want to do the will of the Father? Believe in Jesus Christ. They even asked Him, they said, well, what is the work? What must we do to do the works of God? See, some people get all wrapped up in the word works. Okay, verse 28 of John 6. Therefore they said to Him, what shall we do so we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. <laughs> That's it. That's it. If you want to call it work, go ahead and call it work. But it's not work, it's grace. Because if it's work, then you earn something. But if you didn't earn it, it's grace. That's Romans chapter 11. All right. So there are, if you're all caught up in works, okay. You think you can be saved by works? Only one work. Jesus says, this is the work. Believe. Believe. It's all by grace through faith. You can't do anything. It's not based on what we've done for the Lord, what he has done for us. If you show up with a long list of here's what I did for you, that's the wrong attitude to begin with. And remarkably enough, these are folks that are about to go into the fire. If you stop to think about it, either at the sheep and goat judgment at the beginning of the millennium or at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, they're showing up expecting to get into glory. <laughs> and uh, don't even realize the gravity of the judgment bench that they're standing in front of, either sheep or goat or um, great white throne. Secondly, the strength of our house is dependent upon the, upon living the Word of God, verses 24 through 27. The strength of our house is dependent upon living the Word of God. You're going to build on the rock, you're going to build on the shifting sand. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. That's why you can't just be a hearer of the Word. This is in agreement with the Gospel, with uh, the book of James. We must be doers of the Word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Your Christian faith, is it grounded in the word of God? Are you listening to the words of Jesus Christ? Are you acting upon them? Are you applying doctrine in your life? The believer who is living the word of God has a strong house. But... He, everyone who hears these words of mine does not act on them. He will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now notice, the wind is coming either way, right? 
The rain's coming either way. Some people think that, well, if I just get saved, then there's no more rain, right? I'll have no more problems. Just get Jesus and your marriage is great. Your family's going to be wonderful. You have no more money problems. Everything else is going to be just millennial, okay? And they get this rosy uh, picture, these rose-colored glasses about what Christianity is all about. That's a lie. The wind blows, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We all face testing in life. The only difference is we can face testing with the stability of God's word. And uh, the unbeliever doesn't have that option. And the untaught believer doesn't have that option. The untaught believer who's regenerate but not a disciple, he doesn't have the the firm foundation of of the rock to stand upon in his faith. He reacts and... uh, and plunges into despair, same as the uh, same as the unbeliever, when it comes right down to it. All right. Finally, the crowds were stunned. Point eighteen. The crowds were stunned by the teachings of Jesus because they had never heard the word taught with such authority. The crowds were stunned by the teachings of Jesus because they had never heard the word taught with such authority. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They've been under teaching. The scribes were brilliant. Some of them had even memorized the Old Testament, had memorized the the law, the writings and the prophets. They'd memorized what we have today as the 39 books of the Old Testament. Can you imagine that? (laughs) And yet the teaching had no power. It's like today, uh, holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. Today in the church, we have these pseudo systems of of, uh, religion and churchianity and all this other stuff, and there's no power in any of it. And sometimes, uh, you know, when, when believers first encounter teaching with authority, they don't know how to take it. They've never seen anything like that before. And in some cases, it's a positive thing, and they get hungry for it, and they, they, uh, they, they realize that that's what's going to transform their lives, and that's what's going to uh, uh, make a difference in their, in their testing and in everything else. Uh, other cases, though, if, if they're not hungry for teaching, sometimes when they encounter it, they get scared. They get... Um, Angered, they react. Who does he think he is? Why does he think he has all the answers? Comes across as arrogant. Comes across any dogmatic pastor comes across as arrogant. Say, no, it's just teaching with authority. And it's not my authority. It's, it's the Word of God's authority, and it comes across with power because that's how the Holy Spirit transmits it. So uh, a millennial passage, but we clearly have church age application because of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 and chapter 3. When we communicate, we're communicating with power. Uh, 1 Peter 4 says, he who speaks the, as speaking the oracles of God, uh, that we are combining spiritual with spiritual. When, when the message goes forth, it's the Holy Spirit communicating it. And when the Spirit is, and when a message is received, it's the Holy Spirit receiving it. So obviously there is power involved as well. And we have the New Testament passages to give us that also. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've got two extra minutes this morning, so let me just give you those as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with a full conviction, just as you know. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.5. 
So even though Matthew 7 here is a millennial text, we can draw a secondary application because we have correlating church age passages that bring this into focus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I was with you in fear and in weakness and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is a feature of Bible doctrinal teaching in the church age. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, being matured, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. And it goes on to describe that uh, we have received in verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. That's chapter two and verses 12 and 13. So we draw application of this as well, that our ministry should be a ministry with power. The word of God should go forth with power. We need to be humble before the ministry of the word, not because a human being is teaching it, but because God himself is delivering. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit is communicating to the local churches. All right. Result of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. All right. There will be some changes. This will be this year that we're studying in the Galilean ministry is going to mark the high point. After the feeding of the 5,000, though, they start to peel away and they start dropping like flies left and right. And by the time he's done, there's only 12. And one of them is, is a traitor. All right. So uh, we'll start to notice that. We're starting to hit the peak of his popularity. We're starting to get, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount was like nothing they'd ever heard before. And this launched into preeminence uh, the, the popularity of uh, Jesus Christ and his ministry. And we'll see that unfold in some upcoming uh, sessions. Do we have any questions this morning? Anything before we dismiss in prayer? Yes, ma'am. The entire sermon is about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yep. Right. All scripture is God breathed and profitable. So we can draw application. We can profit from it. But we have to realize it wasn't given to us. It wasn't directed to us. It's like, you know, we don't we have all those Old Testament passages dealing with Leviticus and dealing with animal sacrifices and things. That's not for us. We don't fulfill any of that. But we can glean principles out of that and make application. Those polygamy passages in the Old Testament. It wasn't written to us. We don't make application. We're not all about multiplying wives and so forth. But is there teaching we can glean from that? Are there principles we should be learning from? Absolutely. So Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom passage looking ahead to the millennial kingdom. But the principles we're going to draw from, we can make application today. Yep, that is true. Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.